This world is like being inside a huge leather ball, and outside the ball are other dimensions. There are scuffs, nicks in the leather that make the thin spots, and every once in a while, the leather rips right through the thin part. It's then the other dimension pours in and breathes. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. It's, a, it's an epic story, and it's deserving hours. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. I love your books, I'm a fan. No, I'm a fanatic. Hosted by Arnie. You're a computer programmer. What I do, honey, it's not what I am. Stuart. He was the tortured genius type, you know, but still living at home. And Jacob. I like you a lot more than I thought I would. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. The devil, you say? Well, the devil might come into it. Listener discretion is advised. Stay a spell. What do you say? We put on one hell of a show if I do say so myself. Today we're discussing Nightmares and Dreamscapes from the stories of Stephen King. Starring William Hurt, Claire Forlani, Ian Bailey, William H. Macy, Ron Livingston, Henry Thomas, Tom Berenger, Jeremy Sisto, Samantha Mathis, Richard Thomas, Kim Delaney, and Stephen Weber. Kissin' kissin'. Ooh! <laughs> we were doing so well there! That was almost a professional cast! Directed by Brian Henson, Mark Haber, Rob Bowman, Michael Solomon, Sergio Mimika Gezen, and Mike Robe. This is the now-playing co-host who lives in your nightmares, and maybe your dreamscapes, Arnie. And Stuart. And from Sunnyland Sanitarium, this is Jacob. Stephen King installment number 70. We're getting up there, guys. No longer the nice number, though. Yeah, we're still like 30 years of like books we still need to get to. Nightmares and Dreamscapes is another one of his short story collections, like Night Shift and Skeleton Crew. This one came out in 93. It's weird because when that came out, I had kind of thought he was done with short story collections. Night Shift and Skeleton Crew were collections of short stories he'd primarily written before he was a published author, and certainly mostly before he was Stephen King. And, you know, I was in high school, early college, when Nightmares and Dreamscapes came out, and seven years feels like a really long time when you've gone from grade school to college versus now. And so, yeah, the seven or eight years between Skeleton Crew and Nightmares and Dreamscapes felt like forever, but I got this from my Stephen King book club back in the day and read it cover to cover as soon as it came out. And these were new stories he wrote, not ones that were sitting in some drawer when he's struggling to become a writer because, oh boy, like if what we watch is faithful to what he wrote, I've got concerns about Stephen King. Several of them were older. And in fact, I only know the dates they were published in magazines or other anthology collections, I don't know the date they were written. For example, we're going to be talking about Crouch End. It was published in 1980. Knowing what I know about Stephen King, I'm guessing that was written around 73. But you've got some others in there that were even just published, 
1972 in nudie magazines. Right. And funny you should say that, Jacob, about the bottom drawer. But when I read the introduction to this, because I did pick it up, I haven't gotten through all the stories yet, but I read all the stories that are connected with the episodes we're here to talk about tonight. He had a whole preface where he was like, you know, I didn't want to put something out that wasn't like up to my quality. I'm like, mm. and yet there is a 70 page story about baseball. <laughs> it's like not even horror that you wrote for the New Yorker. I'm not kidding. 70 pages. His passion is baseball. He is to baseball what I am to Star Wars. I mean, he loves baseball. So to him, it would be a change of pace but up to his standards. And the old stuff, it is oftentimes he'd put it through a quick revision before putting it here. If you dug out those old magazines, you might notice some differences. But I've only read this book form. It's not until Books and Nachos that I'll actually order the February 1972 issue of Cavalier Nudie Magazine. I haven't even... If it wasn't for Stephen King, I'd never have heard of that magazine. Oh, I could loan it to you, right? I got the whole collection right here. <laughs> Cavalier, Jesus Christ. But that's when I'll do my comparison print to print. But yeah, I remember reading these back in the day. And like all of Stephen King's short story collections, they have their high points. They have their low points. It would have been great if they picked some high points for the series. Not all of them <laughs> from the series are from that collection. I mean, I've already reviewed the episode Battleground that we're going to be talking tonight. First of all, I never thought we'd be doing this. I don't know why we are. It's a TV series. Limited series. <laughs> I didn't get a season two, so we have to do it, I guess. It's a mini series. It had a start and a finish. That's the rule. And of course, after Loki, there are no rules. <laughs> well, I reviewed the episode Battleground when I reviewed the short story Battleground over at Books and Nachos, because that one is, was a night shift. So th that was written before Toy Story ever came out. Long before Toy Story, before Small Soldiers, they're all ripping off Stephen King. <laughs> Child's Play, yeah. I, and I just want to put it out there, when I was a kid, this was why I loved Stephen King. It wasn't for those big novels that many times I didn't have the heart to tackle. I loved the Night Shift stories, and to a lesser degree, some of the Skeleton Crew stories. I mean, each volume had their, like, high points. Believe it or not, Children of the Corn and Battlefield were two of my favorites from Night Shift, as a short story, as a child. And Skeleton Crew, you gotta give it to the mist and the monkey. <laughs> but yeah, there's always a lot of filler. And this one just didn't have identifiable... We'll get to it. Apparently, the two big stories in this collection are Dolan's Cadillac and The Night Flyer. And both of those have been made into feature films we're going to cover in the new year. The Night Flyer, I remember really liking when I read that the first time. Yeah, it's a vampire story, but he also flies a plane. Like, how very hip. The vampires turn into bats and can fly. You don't need a plane. Apparently you do. Have you seen a bat fly overseas? Not a, a vampire bat. <laughs> They're mystical. Who knows what they can do? <laughs> Yeah, we'll get to those. But for now, you're right. There are eight stories we're here to talk about tonight, and only five of them are from Nightmares and Dreamscapes. One from Night Shift, and one from a future story collection called Everything's Eventual that had come out around the time they actually made this. Even though this is published in 93, this becomes a TNT show in 2006, around the same time TNT did Salem Slot. I think shortly after, wasn't it? They had the mm -hmm. success of Salem's Lot, and they were looking for something else to do, and they did this. And, you know, anthology horror television, 
has long history. I know I watched quite a bit of it in the 80s. There were a lot of those shows. I mean, of course, I watched Twilight Zone reruns, but there was Creep Show and Monsters and Tales from the Dark Side and... The Hitchhiker. Nobody remembers that one, but it was on HBO. <laughs> I always watched that one. So I think there was an attempt at a revival in the mid-aughts because I do remember they tried to bring back the Twilight Zone with Forrest Whitaker. And this comes out the same year as Creepshow 3. <laughs> I have a question, and it's for all of these episodes that we're going to talk about, so just get it out of the way now. Like, I, I think of Tales from the Crypt or that classic twilight zone like you always have some kind of framing thing you have a host and they introduce it like i i don't know if freddy's nightmares was like that or some of the other one but yeah freddy was the host to me anthology horror on tv you have a host you have elvira you have something was there ever a thought to frame these somehow or they're just going to be random stories each night yeah i agree you usually want someone to preside over an anthology you want someone to give that context and freddy's nightmares yeah you had freddy robert england actually did two seasons of a syndicated horror show. Okay, I thought so. I only ever saw one episode of that, but I thought I remember Freddy in it. Yeah. But again, a lot of those did not. I don't believe Tales from the Dark Side did. I know Monsters didn't. But it had that creepy opening. Man, when it went to like infrared and said, there's a dark side. It scared me. It set the mood. And here... Yeah, it would be cool if King had hosted it, right? It would be cool if he did the Alfred Hitchcock thing. You know, Alfred Hitchcock Presents always had the director, good evening. Like, like, wouldn't it be fun to see King try, maybe defend <laughs> some of these stories he wrote? I will, yes, I, I would have loved that. <laughs> It'd be curious to see, you know, he's not usually complimentary about the adaptation. So, you know, it, that's probably part of it. But he's not camera shy. We've seen him do cameos in lots of his adaptations but arnie were you aware this came out 2006 i can tell you i wasn't watching tnt i had no no idea that this anthology existed until i was doing research for this entire you know stephen king retrospective didn't know this happened but i was in i don't know if enthusiastic is right i'm not enthusiastic about the stephen king franchise at this point but i was at least hearkened by the idea that there are a lot of cool name brand actors in this it seemed to be the pitch was that they are going to bring prestige back to the anthology series by having William Hurt, Oscar winner here, William H. Macy. Yeah, they have a lot of people shortly after their peaks. No, I, William Hurt had a history of violence that he was Oscar nominated the year that this came out. So I know what you mean. He was not the leading man he once was. But my point is that this is a pretty good get for cable television at that. No, it sets expectations for him. Like, they got William Hurt? Like, okay, maybe this isn't going to be awful. But to answer your original question, I did know this was coming out at the time. I didn't watch it. There's a lot of Stephen King television that came out that I was not watching at the time. I mean... It's hard to keep up, frankly. Yeah. You were into Dead Zone. That was ending around this time. Mm -hmm. And I'd given up on the show by this point. I didn't watch the last couple seasons of that until I did the books and nachos on the Dead Zone. And here, this was not too far removed from Kingdom Hospital. And I still want to see that. Stephen King does Lars von Trier. Gotta see it. I'd love a Kingdom retrospective series. I've never seen Stephen King's, but the Lars von Trier ones I'd love to talk about. <laughs> Agreed. 
Maybe we will. I don't know. Again, we have so much more King to cover. As far as we've gone 70 films deep at this point, we've still got another 20, 25 to go. And they're always making more. I mean, we're going to try in the next couple weeks to get through every adaptation of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. But after that, so many more novels, so many more projects. So many more remakes of movies we've already covered on the way. That's true. Salem's Lot is coming back. Pet Cemetery is coming back. Christine's coming back. Yeah, well, let's get started because there's... There's probably going to be three more made by the time we get through this entire series. Well, the first episode is called Battleground, and in it, William Hurt plays a hitman who kills a toy maker. When the hitman returns to his penthouse, he gets a strange delivery, a locker full of little green toy army men. The army men come to life and start a siege on the hitman. Their tiny bullets only sting, but their missiles and helicopter blades cause deep wounds. The hitman eventually crawls outside his window to flank the enemy and kills the troops. But he missed the commando. This lone remaining soldier hurts the hitman, causing the giant enemy to flee. The commando chases the hitman into the elevator, where the hitman beheads the final toy, but not before the commando could trigger his thermonuclear warhead, which explodes and kills the hitman as credits roll. Now, say what you will, Jacob, I'm hearing a lot of grumbling about this series, and I'm not going to disagree that there are some clunkers ahead of us, but Battleground was one of my very favorite night shift stories as a kid for an obvious hook. Who wouldn't want to see their toys come alive and have to fight them? You know, like, this premise is great. Yeah, no, I agree. If you're 10 years old, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. And they get Brian Henson, son of Jim Henson, who I guess did some of those later Muppet movies and... Happy Time Murders. Like, You're not helping him. <laughs> well, this one is considered the jewel. I think the reason why we're getting it first, there were four nights of this. And they pair them up, I think, with the, the A picture. You come for the killer toys and then you stay for whatever comes next. They did that every, every week. I think the lead picture was considered the get. I know with television, the, the way, well, you take something like Kitchen Nightmares, like those first one or two, three maybe episodes, that's going to be all the crazy stuff. And then they get a lot of boring restaurants they fix up until the final episode of the season. So like, yeah, my expectations were like, okay, this is going to be the best episode. And look, it's got Bruce Spence, like make him the Crypt Keeper for this series. But like, I was more excited about him showing up than William Hurt, but he doesn't do much. Like no one does much in this episode. Who's Bruce Spence? Thunderdome. Yeah, Thunderdome. He showed up in The Matrix. The Australian actor. He he was in uh, Utapau in, in Revenge of the Sith. Oh, okay, that guy. Okay. Yeah, he's always popping up in things. I don't know that y you would necessarily know him by name. Besides me. <laughs> yes. One thing I want to call out about this episode, though, is it's basic silent movie making. There's not going to be a word of dialogue spoken this entire time. And that's a bold choice for your first episode out. If you're going to try to hook people into a series to start with that kind of artistic douchebaggery, might I call it? Or shall I just call it artistic aspiration is bold. I, I would say aspirations, you know, being into comic books, like every once in a while, some writer is going to go for this and have a issue with no dialogue. I, I'm not going to say douchebag. It's it's an attempt at something. Yeah, and I, again, it just tells me that this is going to be, you know, a, a visual feast. And this did win Emmys for Best Special Effects, Best Score. It won. Won Emmys. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, I don't know what it was up against, but probably in television 2006, yeah, there weren't a lot of special effects driven shows. 
Yeah, that's the only way they should win if there was no other special effects she used that year in television. I'm, I'm going to decide and say I enjoyed this one. I feel like it's going to be the highlight. If you don't like this one, turn off Nightmares and Dreamscapes. There's nothing else here for you. This is as good as it's going to get. And I had fun. Here's my problem. And this is going to go for every episode. I guess these were hour long. They go for about 45 minutes with commercials. These should have all been 30 minutes, which means like 22 minutes with commercials. Like it feels padded out. It's testing my patience because I'm not 10 and they don't have a whole lot for William Hurt to do except like roll around in a bathroom and throw a couch like not 45 minutes worth of material here. I really was worried when he threw that couch because that's how I tore my bicep was trying to move a couch in that exact (laughs) flip motion. His must not have weighed as much as my couch did or maybe he lifts, but that is not a good way to move a sofa. But I'm going to say I really like this episode. I like this episode a lot. I'll agree with you, Jacob. This episode and many of these episodes feel like they could have been a 30 minute runtime that was stretched out. But there's a specific moment in this one where they basically are replaying that cat's eye segment about the guy having to walk on the ledge outside. I I was going to ask you, does King write that kind of scene a lot in his short stories? Because I was surprised to see something so similar. Both are in Night Shift. The ledge is a story right after Battleground. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think I said in the Books and Nachos reviews, it's like he had a brief moment of this one and decided I could sell another short story if I just took that one moment and made it a big thing, both about criminal people walking on ledges to try to save their own lives. So I liked the special effects in this one. I liked the suspense. I liked the battle. It's a mixture of comedy and action. And just the fact that Little Green Army men that Who hasn't? I know I have taken firecrackers and strapped them to little green army men and blown them up. It's nice to see them get their revenge. Okay, Sid. (laughs) Well, let's go to the beginning of this, because I do have a question. Mm -hmm. William Hurt is playing a hitman. He's going to go and kill Bruce Spence, who runs this toy company. Who puts a hit on a toy maker? Like Milton Bradley? Well, that's my question is he takes this little doll that you put like in a music box. So I'm like, oh, he's he's getting that. A client hired him to steal that. No, he's putting that in his personal collection. I thought that doll was going to be the final killer. I thought that little ballerina was going to come to life to get him in the end. But no. Well, it kind of is. I mean, that is sort of the implication. I did like that. He takes a souvenir from all of his hits, and I guess he killed Pedro Serrano from Major League because Jobu is in this collection. No, that's from Trilogy of Terror. Are you talking about the Tiki Fetish doll? Yeah. Yeah, that's Trilogy of Terror with Karen Black. Yeah, let's call out this out. Uh, maybe you haven't seen Trilogy of Terror, Arnie. It's currently on Amazon Prime for free. It was an anthology horror series made in the 70s. It's the best of the three episodes, and Karen Black is in all of them. But she is basically, like this episode, confined to an apartment and being chased by a toy. And it's this little, like, guy with a hatchet that goes, ay, 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 ay. It's yes. really a lot of fun. I won't even spoil the end. <laughs> But it's a real jumper that always terrified me as a kid. Yeah, freaked my wife out when she saw it when she was like five. She still has gets scared whenever it's mentioned. I absolutely love that they're acknowledging this is essentially a remake. We're doing that. The Tiki doll is, yes, in his collection and they're signaling to us. Yeah, this is going to be, yeah, a pretty good showdown here. He's got this swanky San Francisco, like, penthouse. Like, it's got a swimming pool lane. Like, it feels like the full length of a swimming pool, but only one lane of it. And 
and he had to fly from his hit. And did you guys notice the woman on the plane who needed some gum was Mia Sarah? What has happened to her? What was with that whole scene? I didn't understand why they had again cut this stuff. I she yeah she sees that little ballerina. I'm thinking oh this is coming back. No, she just wanted some gum. I guess. I thought they'd break the rule and he would talk because he didn't talk to the stewardess. He's got a classic iPod. It was so retro to see an iPod and he's got his earbuds in and I thought he was going to take them off to talk to she's credited as beautiful passenger and I thought he was going to take out the earbuds to talk to beautiful passenger. But no, this is just going to show that this guy will not speak. And just in case people have forgotten, this is Ferris Bueller's girlfriend, and she was Tom Cruise's girlfriend in Legend as well. And she was Jean-Claude's girlfriend in Time Cop. Well, that might explain why she's here then. <laughs> like, that's a real trajectory down, right? Like, that's where I was in the 80s, and then Jean-Claude, and then, yes, now I'm sitting next to William Hurt. <laughs> I, I, you're right. She's just big enough a star to make you ask the question, is she part of the toy people that are obviously going to get revenge? You kill a toy maker at the beginning of the episode. You send a box of killer toys to get him. Is she the one that dropped it off? We see all these dolls like looking at him as he's going through the airport. uh, Yeah, you feel like they're trying to set something up. Can I tell you guys something, though? The day I watched this, I kid you not, I got an unexpected box of toys on my doorstep from Hasbro. Mm, okay. The whole day, I'm just waiting for these Star Wars figures to come to life and kill me. Mm-hmm. Well, they still could, I suppose. <laughs> what, what, from which movie? That's really the question. Because if it's from the new movies, they really do want to kill you. The Mandalorian. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's a pretty good show. But yeah, I, I do think, though, when this gets going, the action... I'm thinking initially, how are these going to hurt him? And they do... When they hit him with bullets, it's like being hit with low-powered BBs. They're getting under his skin, but it would take a hell of a lot to kill him of those. But when they start firing rockets and then the helicopters come out like Apocalypse Now with some napalm, I'm like, okay, these are toys that could kill. Yeah, the escalation is good. I'd be going along with this better if... Again, we had a Crypt Keeper at the beginning. If we had Stephen King, something to tell. I wasn't expecting camp. Like, it feels like very serious with these opening credits and nightmares and dreamscapes. Like, and then we're going to watch Toys Fight. And I would add to that, it would be really nice if the visuals of this episode, they're pretty good for TV, for cable, TNT. I'm sure that this was the money episode. I'm sure that this was the one that cost the most to produce. But, like, the thing, when you look back at some of the other successful Stephen King anthologies... The Creep Show won, basically, and I don't know, Cat's Eye, I got a soft spot for it. I like that troll. But, you know, you do want to play up sort of a stylization in the camera work. You know, it looked like you were looking at pages of a horror comic. And here, it's there's a real sterile quality to everything. It's got, it almost looks like it was, like, made by Ikea. Literally, there is an Ikea piece of furniture that I recognized. I'm like, yes, there's a footstool from Ikea in this. <laughs> And maybe I'm bashing Australians by saying this, because apparently all of these episodes were filmed in Australia. All I can tell you is that the production values feel very different from what I would normally expect. And what you would want to go for if you were trying to, yeah, create the idea of a campfire tale, leaning into the camp. That would be where I'd want to do. But many of these future episodes, we'll we'll get to it, they really barely even qualify as horror. Yeah, shock to me. I completely agree with that. This one, no part of this is horror. There's nothing here that would classify. It's 
action, I suppose, and a little bit of sci-fi, but these things aren't stalking him. It's not filmed in a scary way, with the exception of possibly when he's walking on the beam outside his window. It feels like child's play to me. I mean, it feels like Chucky could have been in that box. No, I'd call this fantasy. Children's fantasy. Again, this is for 10-year-olds. I put this right with Small Soldiers, and that is not a horror movie. But the way William Hurt is playing this, and he may have won an Oscar for around this time, but this is also a far cry from the William Hurt of the 80s and early 90s, who was... No, that's when he won his Oscar. He won it in 85. He was nominated. He was nominated this year. And he was very good in a history of violence. I mean, listen to that review, and that was around this time. But this is a William Hurt that would be an Incredible Hulk two years later. This is a William Hurt who's doing commercial projects. I guess he's decided he likes things and money. And when he's jumping out with guns and just roaring because he has no dialogue, that is funny. That is not good performing, but it's funny. I think he's pretty good here. I think he classes up what could easily be... I don't know. It's There's so many ways to play this. This shouldn't be classed up. That's what I'm saying, Stuart. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I agree. It would be interesting to see what a different, like someone that would be more credible as a hitman, like Gary Busey or something. I believe Gary Busey would like do a hit on a toy maker. <laughs> you can't shut him up, though. That's the problem. You can put him in a silent <laughs> yeah. episode. You want it to be more seedy. You want it to be more campy. You want it to feel... Again, my reference is Creepshow. That's still one of my very favorite Stephen King movies. And this is not that. I will just start there by saying, as much as I enjoyed this episode, it's not as good as a Creepshow episode. No, it's close, though. It really is close. This reminds me, now that you've said it, of the Cockroach episode. No, that's horrifying. That gave me a phobia of cockroaches for decades. This is Creepshow 3. I don't know, something about that bunny I remember vaguely. Wow, that's mean. Maybe Old Chief Woodenhead, Creepshow 2. I'm going to punish you for that, Jacob. I'm going to lock you in a closet and make you rewatch Creepshow 3 and then come out and apologize to this episode. Yeah, agreed. I'm not. Like, this is not good. <laughs> okay, you're weighing in that this is not good. Correct. Again, if I was 10, I'd be into this. I, I wasn't expecting something so immature for what's titled Nightmares and Dreamscapes and Stephen King. Like, this isn't horror. This is not at all what I would expect from the title, the source material. All of that stuff does not conjure this episode in my mind. It's one of my favorite Stephen King short stories, so I was happy to see it here. But you read it as a kid, which I get. Yeah. The thing that where I feel it gets a little long is the twist ending when he beats all of them and then this commando comes out. I do like that there's like tiny Rambo out there killing him, but... And I think that if you, you know, if the story were written in the 70s, King might have had some idea he was making a parable about the Vietnam War or something that... Like, maybe this was Richard Nixon versus the soldiers he sent to kill. But if there is a metaphor, if there's a reading to that, I don't see it anymore. It's lost in this episode at the very least. Yeah, there's no Iraq here. I don't see that. In the end, this is a joke on the idea that this kit came with a special extra Rambo figure and a thermonuclear weapon. Which was always the cool ending of the, again, that was a big 80s thing. I, again, anytime you talked about nukes. Yeah, war games. It was really exciting for me. So, again, it, it may be just pulling hard on my nostalgia chords, but I was having fun and I felt like this was a good kickoff. So let's put it in writing here. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend this episode, Battlegrounds? Jacob. 
If I'm watching this when the series is new and, and on TV, I'm not tuned into the next episode. No, not recommend. Stuart. I, yeah, I agree with you. Like, I would really think it would benefit from some trimming. Like, 30 minutes would make it even better. But yes, given the fact that they're stuck doing an hour-long stretch, uh, yeah, it's a pretty good, fun time. And for me, I give it a recommend. I liked this episode. I Right in between the two of you, I feel it is too long, but I think it's cute. I enjoyed watching it, and it made me look forward to what will they do next. I actually liked the silent aspect of this. And so it made me think maybe they're going to take a creative risk with each of these. And so I can look forward to what are they going to do in episode two, Crouch End. And unfortunately, Crouch and End sounds like crotch to me. And it just makes me think <laughs> of a dirty spot on your body. <laughs> yeah. It is a real suburb of London, though. There really is a Crouch End. Mm -hmm. And I will say I read this story and was... Knew I was in trouble. Like, I was unimpressed. <laughs> it sometimes feels like King writes things not for a reader, but just to, as a creative exercise of how closely can I mimic an author I admire. And this was definitely a story of, like, I'm going to create frame story around frame story and try to do an H.P. Lovecraft thing. And it just didn't really go anywhere. It was just more about, like, do I sound like H.P. Lovecraft when I write it? And I would say yes, but it wasn't a very good story. So I wasn't excited to see the, the director of Rizzoli and Isles episodes tackle this. This is not a writing exercise, though. This is Stephen King in his early years when he thought he was going to be Lovecraft. If you go back to some of those Night Shift stories, and again, I'll point you to my Books and Nachos reviews of them, there are many where he wanted to be Lovecraft. The Rats in the Walls. There are so many of those stories that end with Cthulhu-like demons, including some are actually called out as Cthulhu. Now, this story was printed in 1980. I swear it comes from the early 70s, though, because it fits right there with those early 70s stories where King just had dreams of Lovecraft. King even moved to London for a while because he mm. wanted to write great gothic horror, and this is the type of stuff he was writing. And I, too, reread this short story. I'm like, can they make it better in TV? Because it was not good in print. <laughs> well, did they make it better? Give us a plot, Arnie. Told in flashback, Claire Furlani plays Doris Freeman, a woman on holiday in London with her husband Lonnie. One of Lonnie's business associates invites the couple to dinner at his house in Crouch End. They take a cab to the area, but lost their instructions. Wandering around the suburb, Claire has terrifying visions. Finally, her husband is taken by a giant tentacled monster, but Claire runs to safety. Her husband is gone as credits roll. Yeah, you gotta do a lot of work to turn this into a TV episode, and I think what they try to do is create uh, tension between newlyweds. Uh, we're now supposed to think that this is the story of a woman who should be listened to, but her bullheaded husband insists on doing work when he should just be pampering her on their honeymoon. And because he knows some people in London, uh, he's gonna drag her to a neighborhood to do a work dinner. Yet yeah, she immediately loses all credibility of should be listened to when she's shouting at old people in her first scene, don't push that elevator button, it's already been pushed, it's bad luck to push an elevator button twice. I've never heard of the superstition, maybe mm -hmm. this is a real thing, but it seems silly to me. Well, I mean, I think it's good to establish this could be a tension. Uh, set it up with a real superstition, though. Have a black cat <laughs> run across her path or something. 
Again, maybe this is real. Listeners can let us know. I have never heard of it. There's a cat in this, Jacob. Let's just get to that. There's a lot of harbingers. So basically, the setup here is he's got to go meet this guy at a neighborhood he's unfamiliar with. And when he's approaching taxi drivers, they're all like, oh, don't go to Crouch End and... You know, there are a million different warnings about how scary and awful this place is when they get there. It will take, what, half the episode. They'll be passing newspaper stands where there's warnings on the, all the issues of every newspaper about death underground and what have you. Yeah, it's just a lot of setup building towards kind of a, a hollow end. The problem is, like, you build up some places, a really scary place, you gotta deliver it when you get there. Unfortunately, a little of this is from the story, but to try to give any visual interest to the first 30 minutes of this 45-minute with no commercial episode... It's like they've decided Doris has the shining. She's going to start seeing things that nobody else can see and demon things, scary cats with Terminator eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we get 30 minutes of relationship stuff that doesn't really matter. Like, I got it from the first couple of scenes. And yeah, when we get to Crouch End, like Stephen King, horror master, scare me. We're going to see Doris like yelling at some bushes because they can't afford any special effects for whatever's happening to her husband. Like, <laughs> It's, it's some kids from Newsies or something. Like, that's it. <laughs> when they get to that, there's like a giant, like, King Kong-sized cat paw that, like, will come for her at some point. <laughs> is that what that was? <laughs> I'm not sure what it was. What I can honestly say is that this is probably the worst episode in the series. If we started with the best, they're going to hit you right away with how bad it can be as well. That is true. This is one of my lowest rated. And a lot of that is because the camera work, like they do this weird slow-mo. They're going for some kind of stylish thing. And it's, it's annoying me. The closer they get to Cthulhu here, the more they desaturate. And they also, yeah. they like darken it around the edges as if you have tunnel vision or as if your television's on the fritz. To the point that I started to wonder if my DVD was bad, but no, it eventually <laughs> pops to full color at the end again. And I'm like, oh, I get it. They were just trying to say it was scary because there wasn't vibrant color, I guess. Yeah, what they're getting at, and I do like this as an idea, I've, I've always wanted them to pull off H.P. Lovecraft on screen. Rarely is it done well. But the idea is that underneath this normal neighborhood, like the reason why it's remote, the reason why nobody goes there is that they stopped building the subway because there was this mass grave underneath and there was this whole Tawin. <laughs> Not a town, mind you. A Tawin is like a place of sacrifice. There's some Celtic, you know, silver shamrock bullshit that went on <laughs> long ago. And so this is just a neighborhood in London that they've given up on. Like everyone's just annexed it and said, okay, this is Cthulhu's. We don't mess with it. <laughs> and don't you expect... So Lonnie, the husband, like they're going there because he has some colleague, he's a lawyer, and they're going to have dinner with some other lawyer. You got 45 minutes. You don't need all this time. At least I'm waiting for the end, like where this mysterious person that invited them, yeah, they're going to be shown in druid robes or mm -hmm. something. And this right. is all a plot to get souls. But no, I don't know. Maybe that guy really does live there. Where's the sacrifice? Yeah. 
it felt much more like that in the short story than this TV episode ever plays up. But in a short story, I'm also reading between the lines and trying to infer a lot and reading at my own pace, and I don't have this horrible special effect of the husband coming out of a demon's mouth with CGI blood eyes. Yeah, that is where truly the lack of money hurts this one. This one needed the most money. It needed more money than what Battleground had, and it just looks... Pathetic. When the tentacles come out or at the very oh. end, the punchline to this is that she finally gets back to a police station. It was empty earlier and now they're, you know, reality has returned. The cops are willing to listen to her. And like Lonnie the cat, her husband is now reincarnated as this <laughs> half eaten cat or whatever, like hanging out at the station. Oh boy. <laughs> that was awful. It's all awful. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Crouch End? Jacob? Stuart, I'm shocked to say that like even this story didn't work because I'm like, maybe the story was good. And the problem is the way they filmed this. I'm like, get David Lynch in here to do something like weird. Like, but yeah, this is bad. The the way it's shot, the style, just the story. Skip it. Do not watch this one. Strong not recommend. Stuart. Even if you could somehow forgive it, it's low production values. And I can do that sometimes when I'm having a good time. It's a build up to nothing. I mean, literally, where they go and what transpires. Her husband disappears. That's it. And why it is, and did he deserve it, and none of that. All of that moralizing you like to see in those EC comics, just not here. It's a pretty much an embarrassment, and it should not have been included at all. I was so regretting even thinking of reviewing this series when this episode aired. I'm like, okay, we had one that was okay, and then this... This is a god-awful episode, and I wouldn't return for episode three. That's how bad this is. Stay away. This is an anthology series. You don't have to watch every episode. Or any of them. Don't watch. <laughs> I can see where Jacob's going. I'm. Uh, we don't even need to ask that motherfucker. He's done. I didn't recommend the best episode, so yeah. <laughs> Will there be a single episode Jacob can recommend? We'll find out, but the next one is Omni's Last Case. Yeah, William H. Macy doing 1930s detective talk. You know, I think he's surprisingly well cast here. When I read the short story, he I was, of course, thinking a Humphrey Bogart type, but William H. Macy plays two roles in here and does very well in both. Another Emmy nominee, like he was up for SAG and Emmys for his performance here. And I do think he's what makes it special. This one's a complicated one. Of all the episodes, I feel like this is the one that they could maybe expand to a feature. I thought it was going to be a two-parter, by the way this one ends. Mm -hmm. They have so much to set up here, and there's so much that they could do with it once you figure out what's going on, that really... Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if someone ever remade this one day as a 80-minute, 90-minute movie. Well, Arnie, tell us what they do do in this episode. William H. Macy is hard-boiled 1930s private eye Clyde Umney. Only he's not. He's a character in novels written by 21st century author Sam Landry, also played by Macy. Landry's marriage is in trouble after his son died by accidental drowning. To cope, Landry threw himself into his work. When that didn't help, he's literally throwing himself into his work. He's writing himself into the stories, and poor Omni is out. Out of his fictitious world and into the real one. Omni wants back into his life, so he takes Landry's laptop and starts to write his own stories. 
as credits roll. I know King, he writes a lot about his life into his work. Like, if he is scared by a toaster, that becomes a 700-page novel. Like, (laughs) here we have a story about a writer. Is there anything that spawned this from his real life? I I don't think he's had a kid die, has he? No, but this felt like an update of a short story of his from Skeleton Crew called Word Processor of the Gods. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. It does. And especially since in the short story here... The character doesn't have a Sony Vio. He has a word processor. And... <laughs> did Sony give him a lot of money for this episode? And did you see this episode? No, not a lot of money. <laughs> or somebody yeah. snorted it if they did. I would hate to see the budget before they got Sony to give him some money then. But you say this could be a feature film, Stuart. I think it would be really hard to take this concept of a character being usurped by an author you'd really have to embellish that short story a lot in order to drive this to feature interest as it is again at 45 minutes it might be 10 too long let's yes unfortunately the first what 10 minutes of this is just setting up a noir land we have to set up the idea that this is a character that lives in cliche there are femme fatales there are gangsters with tommy guns there's you know everything you would expect in a Humphrey Bogart movie from 1940. You know, did we need that much of it? Maybe yes, maybe no. The fact that they're not going to pick up on any of these storylines is really the problem. I think we're supposed to draw parallels between what we later find out is going on in the author's life. The fact that there's a blind kid here and later we're going to find out there's a dead kid in a swimming pool. Maybe you could bind that together and see similar destinies. But ultimately, what happens to Omni here in 1938 isn't tied enough in a feature, you could really make the real ties to Sam Landy's, you know, real life 21st century uh, experience and parallel it with what's going on with his fictional character. Yeah, I, I could definitely see a full feature length film in this, you know, last action hero style. Like they swap places and this fictional character's got to learn how to navigate the real world. And yeah, Truman Show, Matrix, Dark City, Stranger Than Fiction. There were a lot of those kinds of projects around this time. What if your world is not real? That's essentially what this is. We set up this fictitious world where it feels like all cliche, and lo and behold, one day Omni comes into work and everything's going wrong. The elevator man has got cancer and the newspaper kid's quitting. The blind kid beats him up with a cane. (laughs) Yeah, his favorite bar is closed. And yes, he meets the owner of the building who's having his name scrubbed off the windows and he's taken over. You know, I thought William H. Macy was doing really well as the hard-boiled detective, but to see the different performance he gives when he shows up as Landry, it's like two different people. I've always admired Macy as an actor in all the things I've seen him in, but he often falls into that lovable loser type category. But as Landry, he does play like a powerful asshole, and as Omni... He's not a lovable loser. He's just a guy who's getting screwed over. No, I think Omni's the cool one. The loser is this author. This author created someone cooler than himself to project himself in, and that worked for years. But now that he's suffering a a personal tragedy, 
he wants to live in this world. Like, he can't even face reality anymore. Yeah, I like William H. Macy. Great actor. Always enjoy when he shows up. I got excited for this one again. Raised my expectations. Because, oh, they, they got a real actor to come back for another episode. But look, to say that he, these two performances shows his rate. I mean, this hard-boiled detective thing is so big and over the top. Like, anything else would look subtle next to it. So I, I'm not going <laughs> to give him that much credit. Like, yeah, he, he does two performances here. They're They're fine, I guess. They're good. I mean, I hear what you're saying. If there's a problem, it's the direction itself. Maybe you don't want this to be as broad. And again, if this were a feature, you wouldn't have to make it a, such a cliche. I mean, I guess that's the point. Yeah, what, what's, you literally have like a porn scenario go down in this. Like when Umni goes to the real world and the pool lady comes over and like they're <laughs> running around in a very PG way having, an, I don't know, some kind of tryst. Well, this is, yeah. What the point is, is that each thinks that they can benefit from this switcheroo. Okay, I'm going to live, you know, in a world where I, my son didn't die. I don't have to face the crushing disappointment of my wife looking at me every day and me just not being able to process that. I'm going to be this person that I created as my alter ego. I'm going to just take his job. And she, interestingly enough, in the scenes that we saw in present day, was also feeling like I'd rather have Omni than my husband. I'd rather have someone that was unaffected, like just didn't let things get them down, could just be a support system, or at least that's what she thinks he would be if this character came to life. It's wish fulfillment that goes awry for both husband and wife. I do like that the wife thinks she has just a better husband and then comes home to see him flirting with the pool girl and realizes, wait, this is what happens when you're actually with a hard-boiled private detective who keeps calling me Mrs. Landry. But this is all added for the teleplay. In the short story, what you've got is... A much more cerebral story, I dare say, because you could read it as the author has just gone insane. That the author is having a psychotic episode in which he's becoming his character. And the author also, the wife's already gone, the kid's already dead, and he just wants out of his life because he's got recurring shingles and life just sucks. And so when the switch happens... Umbry's able to live in modern day quite well because this guy had no friends or family anyway. But I thought the story could end the written story with this character in a loony bin thinking he became his character, but here it's far more literalized. Yeah, I wouldn't want that. Honestly, I've seen a lot of that kind of, it all ends with him in the nut house or something. No, it's more interesting to think, because let's look at this as metaphor. Like, obviously, I could write a million books, but I could never become that character. I could never enter literally into that world. But what they're talking about is recessing from reality. This is a man that is pouring himself into his laptop and wants to disappear. King is taking it one step beyond. You know, I don't know what was going on between him and Tabitha, but I imagine that this does parallel hard times they've had in their life. King does write a whole lot, so I imagine his coping mechanism for things going wrong is to just pour himself into his laptop, his word processor. Like, all of this felt genuine. Like, I felt like King was 
like tapping into something true. It may be genuine, but it still feels very surface level to me. Like I wanted it to get to something deeper and it seemed so obsessed with its hard boiled stuff. Like, I mean, when we see Landry being a detective, I don't know. I didn't get a vibe that like, oh, he's using all this knowledge that he's learned from writing all these detective novels. And maybe he's coming into some crisis like, oh, this isn't actually how it works in this somewhat real world or fiction, whatever. I wanted something more. It, it felt very surface level. Yeah, this is your first draft. Now think deeper and give me another one. I was really let down by Landry in the fictional world because he's not playing the hard-boiled detective well enough. He has written it so long, but when he's no longer behind a keyboard and not in control of what the person across the desk is saying, he seems to be stumbling a lot, but that never goes anywhere. Yeah, not only that, but what gets said early is that, like, you know, he's not quick. He's not a fast writer, which is not like Stephen King, but like that it takes him a while to come up with a good line. It took him five years to write the last Omni novel. And so when he has to be put on the spot and say those cool lines that take him months to come up with, he can't do it. I think that's really the issue is that it's it's once you see the finished product, it looks like Omni is effortlessly cool, but that is years of work for him to be able to have those quips and and be that badass. Of course, he said he was having a hard time and it's hard to write during those. I don't think it normally took him that long to write. It was because of the son's death that that specific book took so long. True enough, but I do think that there's also something to the idea of being put on the spot, improvisational. It's, you know, it's hard to, yes, you're right, he's not writing the other characters, he's not controlling them in the same way that he can. When he has that laptop, we saw him kill off Omni's girlfriend and can just make, you know, really rash decisions with a, you know, a few clicks of the keyboard, and without that, he does seem to be... They both seem to be regretting the choice. Karen, the wife, is going to kill herself. And I don't know. We don't really have a solid conclusion. But my feeling is that Sam wants to come out of this world. But it would be even harder to face what he's done to Karen. He sees her die, right? He looks out of the detective agency. He sees her fall. So that's not going to be a motivation to like get back to reality, right? My kid died and now my wife died. Yeah, it doesn't even seem like he wants to get back. It's Omni that's trying, you know, I got to learn to be a better writer to get back there. That's the hook at the end, I guess. And that shouldn't be the end. I mean, this story ends too soon. We should have that showdown. No, I can't believe that's the end. We should, this again, this is the one episode where I feel like there's so much here to material to mine, so many ideas, it really needed to be a, a feature. Yeah, the fact that the next episode is going to be called The End of the Whole Mess, I'm like, oh, okay, this is a two-parter. <laughs> like, I really thought William H. Macy was coming back. So did you want him to? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Umbre's Last Case, Jacob? I mean, thank God I have a laptop because I wrote myself out after that second episode. I'm not watching these anymore. I have some fictional version of me watching these. Does the fictional version of you like them better? And, and no, that, that, he's, he's very <laughs> mad at me. He's trying to switch places with me again because no. Look, a lot of the same problems with all these episodes is we get this whole 10, 15 minutes at the beginning with the hard-boiled stuff that doesn't matter. Like, this one felt like there was some promise, there was something to get at, and they just don't do it. I, I, I would actually be interested in seeing the redo of this one, but don't watch this shortened version. Stuart? I'm going to be kinder. I've, I'm going to give this a recommend. I feel like it's probably the second best episode in this series, largely because of Macy, but also because I'm just a sucker for this kind of postmodern ideas about authors projecting themselves into their work and vice versa. Like the creative process is interesting to me. So I feel like there's a lot to 
I'm, I'm probably giving this episode too much. You are. Because I just like <laughs> conceptually what they're doing. And I think it's kind of fun. Like there's some cute ideas. There's also some drama. But again, it's also shorthand. You do wish it were better. You do wish it were longer. You do wish someone would take a different crack at it other than Rob Bowman, director of Electra and Reign of Fire, you know. So <laughs> yeah, it, it could be so much more as all these episodes could. But Grading on a curve, I say this is a recommend. And this is so far better than either of those feature films you mentioned. And to me, it's not the second best episode. It's probably fourth or fifth out of eight, but that still puts it in a recommend category to kind of spoil that in the end, I'm probably going to give most of these episodes a bit of a pass. Not that they're great, not that this one was great, but it was entertaining enough, and Macy's performance took it over the line for me. I actually like the short story better than this teleplay, but yeah, for a 45-minute TV episode, why not? Green Arrow. And then the other half of this night, night two, is, as Jacob said, the end of the whole mess. With the director of the recent Salem's Lot TNT stepping in here to do more King. But they didn't get Rob Lowe back. They got Ron Livingston from Office Space instead. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently so. I was excited to see him. (laughs) I was too. Let's find out, because I did enjoy this short story. When I read it, I thought it was funny and a clever idea, and I couldn't imagine how they were going to exactly turn it into a a movie, but Arnie, give him the plot, and we can discuss. Funny? Oh. Well, this story is told in first person by Ron Livingston's character, Howard Fornoy. He's making a videotape as the world ends. Howard is the older brother of genius Bobby Fornoy, played by Henry Thomas. As a child, Bobby made breakthroughs in science, but as a young adult, he became depressed by the state of the world. So he developed a drug that would eradicate all violent tendencies from man. With Howard's help, they seed this drug in a volcano, which spreads it worldwide. Only after it's been ingested globally do the brothers realize it brings on Alzheimer's and everyone exposed. This single episode is the anti-vaxxer dream. It is. (laughs) That's my note on this one. The entire world is losing its mind and dying. Howard barely gets the story out before he begins babbling incoherently as credits roll. All right, so Henry Thomas. How much Stephen King has he done? There are so many people in this series who have done past and future King. It's really a weird incestual family tree of people who have acted in King movies. At this point, besides E.T., has he done anything that's not King? Yeah, I mean, Hill House. That feels King adjacent. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) I don't see it that. The only King he's done is Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep. And he shouldn't have done Dr. Sleep. He's not Jack Nicholson. But I understand what you're saying. Yes, there are actors that we more closely associate with Stephen King's work. Henry Thomas isn't one for me. I really will I'll probably always think of him as the kid from E.T. And here, he is another child, all grown up. Like, he's got the, the solve the, the problem of meanness. I mean, he is a boy that is thinking big from an early age. But it's told by his brother. As you stated before, Ron Livingston is an actor I don't know very well. We someday just have to make you watch Office Space. But <laughs> Apparently he was on Sex in the City as well, but again, not, not something I've seen. Yeah, he usually shows up in smaller roles in films, but Office Space is his, yeah, that's the role for him. Whether he wants it or not, and I really don't know anything about this man, I'm positive he goes into a restaurant and somebody else, Peter, man, breast exams on Channel 2! <laughs> Yeah, where's your flair? 
Don't know. Not for me. I don't do that because I don't know what you're talking about. But yeah, you would think that he would be lighthearted comedy. That would be what you cast him here. You kind of blanched when I said that the story was funny. But I guess by funny, I mean ironic. Like Kurt Vonnegut funny. Black humor. Like there's something very funny about someone that sets out to create world peace and makes everyone insane. Yeah, I, I will say, maybe giving you hope that I'll recommend something here. This is my favorite episode out of all these. More than Battleground. Oh, easily, yeah. Yeah, it's high for me as well. But again, a lot of it's the goodwill of the story. It's just a good idea. Here, what they've done, you know, on the page, you were watching a character, like, slowly lose it in telling their narrative. And by the end of it, his handwriting is atrocious, and he's barely putting words together. Kind of like Flowers for Algernon. Right, exactly. Here, they've solved the problem by making him a documentary filmmaker. He can put a camera on himself. By the end of the episode, he's going to be drooling and what have you. He has one hour to tell you what happened. That's kind of a fun hook. Yeah, no, I like the idea of this one. That's probably why it's my favorite, because it's the idea that I like the most. But look, they have a slide whistle sound effect in this episode. It's not great. Do they? I didn't catch that. Is it in the early scenes? Oh, yeah. It's during the montage where the brother, can Bobby, can never find one interest, and he hops from interest to interest when he's, like, going to Georgetown as a kid. Yeah, he builds a Kitty Hawk-like plane, and again, like, you really... They, because they have to elongate this to an hour, like, I get that it's hard to tell in an hour how we ended up destroying the world. But for this episode, I really don't need to hear all about his great inventions and early on. It only gets important when, like, what, about 30 minutes into this episode, Henry Thomas shows up and says, I've solved the problem of bees and wasps. Yeah, you could cut another 15 minutes out of this episode. Like, though, when we get to 9-11 and like, we got to do something. Why are people so mean? I'm like, I'm like, is he going to go back in time and solve 9-11? He's going to stop it? Is that what the point of this episode is? No, they're at a lake house and he says maybe it's something in the water. (laughs) And so that was that was where the idea came from. Or something not in the water, he says, which is. Right. So, yes, what he has discovered by the time he returns as an adult is that there's this well in Texas. Texas, by the way, is a place full of animals and crazies with guns that kill each other. We've all been there, and yes, I suppose they have their history of Wild West and JFK problems, but maybe an unfair thing to pin on Texas entirely, that they're the killer state. (laughs) Yeah, according to the Republicans, like, Chicago's the most dangerous place. Actually, not according to Republicans. Chicago is, per capita, the most dangerous place. But the point is that there's this little town, La Plata, that has this well, and there's no violence there. They call it a calm quake. And so this man, with his scientific mind, found a protein in this water that's unique and extracted from it a formula that, yes, will just make bees not want to kill wasps, even though they can sting you four times. They're not going to sting you once when he throws the wasp nest at his brother. It's a cool idea. I really do like this. No, I agree. Like, there's some kind of chemical going on, though. I thought, you know, he does the demonstration with the bees first and two sting. I don't know. Maybe do those bees get Alzheimer's? Is that foreshadowing for what was going to happen? That's why they stung him. But he gets two stings. I guess it's just there to set up that, yeah, something's going to go wrong, which I I imagine this is nightmares and dreamscapes. I'm expecting something to go wrong. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure where this was going when I read the short story. And all of this stuff about him as a child works better on the page. But yes, I did 
find it interesting. I thought this might actually be a precursor or a parallel to The Stand also. I knew something was going to go bad with what was spread. I pictured more Captain Trips than Alzheimer's. Yeah, how could you not expect it to go bad when your plan is to spend millions of dollars to seed this magic water in a volcano? I love that. So it blows and covers the earth. Like, that's where I'm like, oh, a volcano. That's how we're doing this. Well, I mean, when you just think about the idea of like when that volcano in Iceland erupted, I remember that they said that ash went all over the world pretty quickly, stopped a lot of airplane flights about a decade ago. So, yeah, there's probably, you know, less extravagant ways to administer a cure, but this guy is trying to cut through red tape, right? That's part of his problem is he wants to get there quickly. I'm sorry, did you say Operation Warp Speed? Yeah. <laughs> this is way before Trump. In fact, the only president they feature is George Bush II making friends with Kim Jong-il <laughs> after they get this miracle protein out through the volcanic eruption. Everyone for three years is like, yeah, we don't want to fight. Meanness has been solved. Congratulations. Other things have also been solved, like cognition. Like, we just can't think anymore. I'm not even going to joke. I'm kind of scared we're all going to be like this in a few years. Here's the thing. My, my grandfather father suffered from Alzheimer's and sure I know he had a lot of paranoia because he didn't recognize anyone around him he also he he didn't remember anything like I don't know what was going on inside of his head but it was much harder for all of us who still remembered him and like loved him like it could be worse than Alzheimer's we just forget and like slowly fade away I imagine that is better than how this humanity is going to end in real life And, you know, this gets said towards the end of this tape, you know, Henry Thomas comes back to his brother and says, kill me. Like, I don't want to face what I've done. And the brother tries to make the case in the end, a world full of idiots is better than a burning cinder because we all killed each other. Debatable, I suppose. But in this way, we're all still alive, right? The, The difference is that we'll be calm and maybe we just don't, we die because we don't feed ourselves or we just don't know how to defend ourselves from animals. But we didn't use our aggression to destroy each other, which is how I imagine it really going. It's a Pyrrhic victory at best as he's having his own brother shoot him up to overdose on the drug and get out of this easy death, as you call it, Jacob. I don't think it's easy on anybody when you're struggling to remember everything. And my mother currently has Alzheimer's and it, I wish it on no one. No, I I get what you mean. Like it is traumatized us as a family. Like I have an aunt. Every time she forgets a word, she swears she has Alzheimer's. Like it haunts everyone like that. that This could happen to them. Sure. Mm -hmm. So To me, it is horrifying. The best horror for me now is horror that's real. Taking a medicine that isn't fully tested and then getting Alzheimer's, both of these things are very real and very scary and very present in my current day life. So as far as horror goes, this is the second scariest of the entire Nightmares and Dreamscape (laughs) series. I don't know. I feel like the focus should have been more on Bobby dealing with the repercussions of speeding and wanting to cure meanness and... It's weird that he's not the main focus of this, that it's so much of it's Ron Livingston because it's him doing the documentary. I get that they want to retain the idea of I only have an hour to tell you what's going on. And as the hour progresses, I'm going to be less coherent in the telling. But it's all flashbacks. So you have all the time in the world, really. Yeah, the problem is that, yeah, right. If it were a one-man show and Ron Livingston really just had to give an hour-long monologue, that would be a true acting challenge. And maybe 
Just maybe that could work. But the gimmick doesn't, it reads better than it plays here. I do agree. Maybe they should have been a bit, a little bit more brave in adapting this, thrown out that piece, and just focused on the well. Well, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend the end of it all? Jacob. The one I like the most, but it's the one I like the most conceptually. Like, I don't like the execution of any of these. Like, this one had some ideas that I got into, kind of like the last episode, Umni's Last Case. Like, there's some stuff to mine there, but the execution is flawed. It's not entertaining to watch. It's fun to think about, maybe, but I don't want to watch it. I want to forget it, not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, it's good once you get started. Like, skip the first 25 minutes and all of the backstory (laughs) and what they did as brothers. Like, none of that pathos will mean anything. The fun of it is the science experiment of always there's something in the water that could make people calm. And how to issue that so that the entire world quickly ingests it. Love all that stuff. But the execution here, I agree. It's not a great episode just because it dawdles in the wrong places. But I did like it. I think it's a goofy premise. I had fun. It's a better story than uh, episode, but it's a recommend. Agreed. Better on the page than on the screen. I think that's going to be the case with a lot of the stories here. And I don't know why that is because they've got good talents involved making these, but I think in this case, it is one of pacing. I really did lose interest during Bobby the early years, and then once the cure for anger came in, it became a lot more interesting. It's enough for a very weak recommend, but if you didn't see it, I'd say read the story anyway. Yeah, I agree with that too. And next up, episode five, the wonderfully named The Road Virus Heads North. (laughs) (laughs) Another story about a horror writer. Yeah, and not from Nightmares and Dreamscapes, the 1993 anthology. This one was pretty recent. And I think they, I mean, I haven't read everything in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, but I do think that there's a dearth of good material there. I do think that they were like, we just need... Grabbers. We need something to be the kickoff here. And Tom Beringer needs to do something cool. Yeah, I think this is why Artie was thinking Major League when he saw that little tiki statue. Because Tom Beringer. I saw Joe Boo long before I saw <laughs> Tom Beringer. Is that really your go-to for Tom Beringer? Major League? Not Platoon? Yeah, I forgot he was in Platoon just now. <laughs> Big Chill? Sniper? <laughs> Inception? I know no one remembers him from Inception. No, I don't remember him in Inception, no. (laughs) He's there, I swear to God. But anyway, yeah, this one's kind of fun because it's kind of Stephen King talking about what it is to be Stephen King. Arnie, give him the plot. Richard Kinnell, played by Tom Berenger, is a horror author driving north to visit his aunt in Maine. He comes with a heavy spirit, though, as his colonoscopy showed some worrisome, though inconclusive, results. On the trip, Kennel stops at an estate sale where he buys an eerie painting of an evil man behind the wheel of a car. The artwork is called The Road Virus Heads North. Soon, bad things start happening around Kennel. He tries to get rid of the painting even by burning it, but it always keeps reappearing. Finally, the road virus jumps off the painting and into real life, ready to take Kennel as credits roll. Uh, Has Stephen King had or ever talked about having a medical scare? This is going to be a story in which a colonoscopy is going to make a man really paranoid. Well, he almost died when hit by a truck, but... That would have happened by this point, too. Yeah. Like, but because it's a newer story, Mm -hmm. that's probably an influence. That truck hit has changed his perspective on a lot of things, and I do see it working its way into a lot of his fiction in certain ways. So, I don't know... 
I'm guessing, based on his age, that he has had the ass probe done. I don't know if he got any scares of it. I mean, he's not that private a person, but he's not that public a one either that he's going to say, I had some cancer cells in my colon. No, I'm not implying that it would be literally like this. But again, it's really, what's interesting about this episode is that you see a man that has to deal with his fans. He's got a convention in his honor where everyone wants him to sign their books and give him body parts. Their back tattoos. Back tattoos. (laughs) And all he can think about is, I got a really interesting inconclusive medical exam and I'm really worried because of my family history that this could be my last year to be celebrated. See, and I thought this episode was going to be, you know, there's that thing with writers or any celebrity. They get asked the same question a million times, and it's got to get annoying. And it happens a few times in this one. Where do you get your ideas? <laughs> yeah. Oh, King hates that. He he has come up with a pat answer that he goes down to the idea store and buys them two for one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I figured he has some snarky idea. I thought this was going to be a lot more about that. Just scary things are always happening to him and it, that are seem supernatural but yeah it's more about a, a man like worried about his health yeah that's certainly the metaphor for what we're to take what would normally just be a campfire tale guy buys scary painting and the painting foretells of something coming for him i feel like that story is as old as storytelling itself and, and i'll say this like my favorite prop in all these episodes i wish i had that painting i'd buy that in the state cell <laughs> That painting looks like some trash art you'd buy right next to the wolves howling and things at those unlicensed art sales on street corners. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Yeah, exactly. That kind of hippie van. Maybe not hippie, exactly. But that kind of, I painted my van myself, kind of. It's got a moon roof and everything. (laughs) Definitely a certain style of art. Airbrushed. Yeah, exactly. It's something I don't own any of nor want, but I think what attracts this author to it, well, maybe it's his colonoscopy. I mean, they're going to make that stretch, but I think that he's just, (laughs) because he's a master of macabre. Colon stretch. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't going for that, but the point is, is that because he's a master of horror, the idea that this man died, this is one of the last paintings that are in existence. He burned all his paintings He hung himself, this mentally ill person. You know, it's kind of like owning John Wayne Gacy art. You know, like there's just something kind of uncomfortable about it that a horror author might go for. That's kind of why I felt when I read the story, he was being punished. I didn't see it as a medical exam metaphor. I saw it more like you exploited a man's problems and now he's going to get you. Yeah, the fact that it's called the road virus makes you really wonder... You know, is the author the virus? Because he is driving north, driving to Maine. Yeah, this is where I'm thinking of the stand with Captain Trips, like traveling through the East Coast, killing everyone. You mean like he's a negative influence like a virus? His stories are negative? Yeah, I thought, like, we'll see the lady who sold the painting. She's going to die. I thought it was going to be revealed that it was Kinnell, like, just going around, possessed by this painting, killing people. And then he writes it into a book. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you feel like it could go a lot of different ways. And I guess that's good. It keeps you guessing. I'm not exactly clear. Even after reading the story, I wasn't exactly clear how this was going to conclude. He's going to Maine because he has an aunt up there, Marsha Mason, of all people, that he wants some comfort, I guess. And 
Also, and this is kind of weird, his dog is being sat by his ex-wife in a trailer park. Not sure why. Yeah, like, he he visits this one woman who seems age-appropriate. I'm like, that is his wife? And then uh, he calls her aunt. So I'm like, okay, that's that's someone else. And then, yeah, he visits this other woman. I'm like, is he just going around? Like, just a ladies' man. I, I guess that's what happens when you're a world-famous author. Mm-hmm. But yes, that what should be happening is they're being killed. Is he doing that? Is there a wish fulfillment element to that? Are they because they're family and it's a, you know, a disease that's wiped out branches of his family tree? I mean, I don't know. You could go lots of different places about what all of this means. But the point of it is, at the root of it is, the creep show hook of it all is that every time he looks at that painting, it's coming closer and closer. It's crossing bridges we've seen him cross. He knows that he will not be able to escape. Every time he tries to get rid of this thing, it pops up in that backseat. You know, you say that you're looking and the metaphor could mean so many things. The fact that the metaphor is so ill-defined is one of the things I'll ding both the short story and this teleplay for. I think that the metaphor should be stronger, whereas this just seems like a painted version of sometimes they come back. Yeah, did the lady who sold the painting have colon cancer and that's why she really died? Like, Well, she sold the painting. She exploited this man's work. But this isn't about exploiting someone's mental illness or their work, ultimately. That's what's confusing. I get your point. But I think that they've done a pretty good job here, the screenwriter, knowing you have to work within the episodic one-hour format of stretching the original stories in ways that makes you wonder and makes you stay with the whole thing. You want to see it go to its end. I'll say that much. There's uh, some cheesiness to the visuals and that painting. Yeah, it's pretty wacky but like i definitely wanted to know how this was going to resolve around the time he was with the reiki lady and having his katra cleaned or whatever his ex-wife yeah i was ready to turn this episode off really yeah i i couldn't believe her like there's like seven chakras and i feel like we cleanse every one of them in this episode <laughs> like it it's really gonna take its time with that scene no i didn't feel like it was like that and Tom Berenger is just giving this sweaty performance. I've seen him to be so much better than he is here. He's really... Major League, yeah, it's so much better. <laughs> I mean, he shouldn't be entertaining. He should be cranky and worried. And again, he's having a health scare. And so, like, yeah. And now a painting's trying to kill him. I mean, I feel <laughs> like he has every reason not to be charming. The problem is I can't take the painting very seriously either. It's this airbrushed painting of a guy with fang teeth and... The painting keeps changing where the car is. Yeah, if he was doing like some kind of detective work and he's like, oh, this is what changed the painting. I guess we see him call Aunt Trudy mm -hmm. after seeing the painting at one point. I think that's just because it comes back, though, because he burned it. Like, this needs to have more form to it. It feels like a bunch of ideas and it doesn't really know what to do with all of them. I'll agree that I feel like in the end you would probably want to tighten it up a little bit. But again, in just thinking in terms of like what happens next, which is what television is built on. What Will you stay till the next commercial? Arnie, I'm hearing you say you wanted to turn it off. I definitely wanted to know. I wanted to stay with it. And you stay with it to the conclusion and you get Tom Berenger falling down some stairs is he dead and then confronts, confronted by road virus guy? Or is road virus guy his anal tumor come to life? Yeah, that seems to be the reading. I feel like if you watch this episode, if you read the story, you might come to other ideas. But if you watch this episodic adaptation, you believe that the 
thing that he was afraid of has claimed his life. And that this virus is quite literally what's inside his body. And maybe Stephen King killed him too, because if you notice when he's running around upstairs, he trips on some actual Stephen King novels. That's what sends him down. <laughs> I did notice, yeah, some King novels in the house. Those things are so big that if you trip on them, yes, the books will not move. You will go down. So maybe he broke his neck falling down the stairs. I don't know. But the point is that, yes, we are to think that he is dead, either by his own paranoia or by what was actually growing inside of him. Well, what's growing inside of you with this episode? Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend The Road Virus Heads North, Jacob? Is this about a disgruntled writer being asked the same questions over and over? Is this about a man with a medical scare? Is it about a haunted painting? Yes? No? All of it? None of it? I don't know. I needed more form here, but I love the painting, but not enough to give it a recommend. Stuart. I'm going to say I kind of dug it. I mean, this is as bad as I'm going to forgive, is the way I would look at it. Not great. None of these things are great. Greatness is not on the table here. But when I think about what I appreciate when I would go to the library and check out a book of scary tales, this has a lot of those elements. It has a lot of things that, as a kid, I would enjoy. And that's what I'm trying to do, project myself into the 10-year-old that wanted to hear a really creepy, put-the-flashlight-under-your-chin-and-tell-it-at-midnight and kind of story. It works. So, very mild recommend. Well, I've heard better versions of this story told around campfires by people with less writing experience than either King or whoever it is who wrote this for television. Second worst episode, Behringer is bad, the story is worse, and I don't even like the painting that you guys are so high on. I think that's shit art. Oh, it is. Don't lump me into that. <laughs> yeah, that's why I love it. That, it's not Picasso. I love the campy trashiness of it. <laughs> no, again, second worst episode. The only one worse is Crouch End. Oh, so wrong. There's so much worse than this. Really? Yeah. Do you dislike yes. the next one, the fifth quarter, that much? I don't understand. This was written by Stephen King. Like, where's the scares? Where's the horror? Mm-mm. Let's stop this right here and say that when you read this story, it's a fraction of what they've turned this into. This is the most changed from page to screen. They've created something entirely different in my mind. Well, I guess it's the same story, but the way they present this is way different than the way you're going to experience it reading on the, in the book. Well, Arnie, tell us what we are going to experience with this episode. Give us a plot. Inmate Willie Evans, played by Jeremy Sisto, is finally getting out of prison, returning to his wife Karen, played by Samantha Mathis, and young son Jackson. But his first night out of the pokey, Willie's old cellmate Barney shows up at Willie's place, dying of a gunshot wound. Barney tells Willie that he was part of a robbery that got nearly $4 million. The money was hidden, and each of the four criminals involved were given one quarter of a map. One of the other thieves shot Barney, hoping to get his quarter of the map. Barney dies, and Willie decides to get the money for himself. He goes and visits Barney's partners in crime and gets two more map segments. But he's being followed by the gang's leader, Jagger, who kills everyone who gave up their map piece. In a shootout, Willie kills Jagger and gets the final map piece, but the night's events have Willie back in jail, trying to explain a gunshot wound he sustained in the gunfight. Karen has left the map, and recognizes it as a map of the ride at an amusement park where she works. She goes in and finds all the money as credits roll. Yeah, so much backstory. Just things that, again, I talked about earlier, Crouch In, where it just felt like King is like, I'm going to try to impersonate H.P. Lovecraft. This is definitely like, how do I get my Dashiell Hammett on? Like, it was like, I just want to sound like a noir writer, and I'm going to do this little bit 
that has almost no plot to it whatsoever. Poor adapter that has to turn this into an hour of television. Yeah, what is the horror in the short story? Well, keep in mind, Stephen King also wrote as Richard Bachman. King isn't always horror. This isn't Bachman, though. It's kind of Bachman. This is nightmares and dreamscapes. No, but he did say it was. If you look at the preface and the way he talked about some of the stories, he said that this should be a Richard Bachman one. I do think it is not a horror piece at all. And so that just in and of itself means it probably doesn't belong here. But then, yeah, what he did do, what feels like ultimately a joke about somebody tripping over a dead body. And like, we can't make a pratfall into an hour of television. We need to do something dramatic. And so what I can compliment this movie for is that I had a whole lot more caring about these characters than I did on the page. Willie, Karen... Barney. Part of it is the actors. I mean, Jeremy Sisto is an actor. I mean, all the way back to Clueless. He was the father on Suburgatory. I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. Samantha Mathis, she's having a now playing moment. American Psycho here. Another Stephen King connection. She'd be on the TV series Under the Dome. Yeah, they're good. I will just say that it's surprising that we have so much time in, frankly, doing stuff that I don't think Stephen King is usually very good at. Like, marriage drama is not where I feel like he's excelled. But a large part of this is about the betrayals in a marriage contrasted with the betrayals of honor among thieves. You know, we have this story of a map and then we have what this couple, who may have cheated on who while Willie was in prison. And I get that. That's something King doesn't usually do, but you think this is good? Like I could see what they're going for, but you think it's good? I think it is not good. I think that ultimately (laughs) that this is a pretty well acted. It's a lot of people using a lot of talent to polish a turd. They really didn't have much here, but they really are going to try for something. And I applaud that. I really think that there's at least an A for effort. But could I call this whole thing? I mean, again, there's something so limp about the quest that I can barely work out enthusiasm to even talk about the, the treasure map. Yeah, yeah. What if Marriage Story was about ScarJo finding real gold on Pirates of the Caribbean? Like, oh boy. <laughs> I wish that there was more to it. I'm liking this couple. I'm liking the little hints when the wife says, well, how did you make it that many years? Because what we're supposed to get from this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that while in prison, Willie slept with Barney. He and Barney were lovers. And then when Barney got out of prison... Barney and Karen were lovers, right? I mean, they both found solace in Barney during this long time apart. Yeah, I want to point out this is episode is coming a year after the social phenomenon of Brokeback Mountain. And I do feel like this writer is trying to tap into that. You know, gay themes were just big at this time. And the idea of exploring a marriage where, yeah, we think there are characters that are going to apply. She cheated on you. She's this hussy or whatever. The twist of it being that they both used the same person at different points in their life is a nice turn of events, but what does it mean, particularly in the context of a nightmare or dreamscape? My problem with it is it does not ever go anywhere, you know? For the rest of the episode, Willie's going to be told his wife's a hussy, and okay, yeah, my wife slept with somebody else, and he's just, it, it never goes anywhere. It's so much more about the map and the money than it is about the drama after we finally get past, like, the 15-minute mark. 
Well, there is still some homoerotic subtext because once he goes on this quest, uh, like basically what happens is Barney has disappeared. Uh, when Willie gets out of jail, nobody knows where he's at. There was some talk about we'll go out west and make our fortune together. He comes rolling in with a bleeding side and talk of these treasure maps. He says, you can take my fourth of a cut of this 3.5 million treasure and points them in a direction of the other people involved. When they get there, there's Tom of Finland artwork up and there's definitely some idea that these were, you're right, I don't know what it means that we they had a sexual relationship in prison and now dealing with a homosexual criminal that has a fourth of the money. I, I wish it did mean something. I wish this were about characterization. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but of course, this is something they've had to make up to expand an hour of television. Because if you adapted that, what, 20-minute story, it's just about someone trying to sound like, you know, Sam Spade. And the episode tries to play it so safe with the character of Willie and that Willie will go and shoot a guy in the arm and t shoot another guy in the leg but he's a criminal but we're supposed to stay on his side so they're gonna have somebody else come along and kill these people behind him yeah I don't care about any of these shootouts I really the only thing I care about is the drama I don't think the episode cares about him like there's a whole subplot where the wife is taken hostage and that seems to get resolved very easily mm-hmm yeah takes care of itself. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and this is filmed in 2006. I'm thinking this might be filmed digitally because this is an ugly episode and anytime most of it's in darkness, it has got so much noise, so much digital noise all over the episode. It was painful to watch and so desaturated half the time. I thought they were back in Crouch End. It was so desaturated. I thought Cthulhu was coming for them all. Yeah, well, this is shot by the same guy that did Omni, and I felt like, well, for their production money anyway, Omni's one of the better-looking episodes. It is a surprise that this one is so underlit. But I think they were going for noir. I think that they were trying for something here, and you could applaud the effort, but we can all agree they didn't get there. What I do like best about this episode is the score. Now, they've credited composer Jeff Beale with the entire series, but this one, he's got some electric guitar whales going on and things. It's really adding an action-y vibe to that. I was waiting for the score to come up. So the same guy did all of these because I hate the score in every episode. Like, <laughs> not good. Yeah, no, and it, score is going to be a real problem when we get to the last yes. episode. Ooh. I'm going to hold that thought, but Arnie, at best, it's passable. There's nothing about the score that makes you want to seek it out in isolation. Oh, no, I'm not buying the album. I'm just saying in the context, it provided energy. It made the shootouts better than the filming and the acting made them. But the fact that it all ends up on Pirates of the Caribbean is forehead slapping, right? I mean, that's just so ridiculous. I mean, it was a popular movie series that had its second installment at the same summer this came out. So they were thinking Johnny Depp. They were thinking that wouldn't it be fun to tie a, a, a fantasy pirate treasure to the idea that these thieves would have a map that leads to a theme park version of it. I don't know. I don't know what they're going for. Let me sum up what Stuart just said. Yes, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's so stupid. Yeah, it's just not a satisfying story. Yeah, and as soon as she got that map, like there is one scene early on where we see her like checking out of her job at an amusement park. I'm like, oh, oh, we're going back there at the end, aren't we? It's, it's not a map to a real island. 
And how many days does she have this map? It feels like she's been searching for islands shaped like this for a long time before her son eats dry cereal. Who does that? No, when she's like wet or dry, I'm like, what kind of question is that? You're insane, lady. And then I'm like, oh, that cereal box is going to be the key, isn't it? But meanwhile... Her husband, Willie, is with the police, and it seems like he's only been there a few hours when he's saying it's self-defense and I'm going to get out on this charge. Yeah, it doesn't even feel like they've booked him yet. Mm. No, they say you haven't been out of jail. He's on parole, you know, you haven't been out 24 hours and you're going back in. And is that what does that mean? Because she has a dialogue at the beginning of it before he's let out that she's never going to do any more stint as a single mom. Like, when you come home, you're coming home forever or we're busted up. She's taking that money and running. She's going to have some fun. And No, no, no. She's taking that money. And with that amount of money, look at OJ. This guy's getting away with everything. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell what it means. For her to get that money, I don't know whether she's done with him or she's going to save him. If it saved their relationship or given her the freedom to get away. Did Barney actually engineer it so that she could get away? I don't know. There's so many ways... That this could have gone, but ultimately, the human drama, as interesting as it is, is the best part of this episode, is unfulfilled. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend the fifth quarter? Jacob. No, like, this is a dumb story. I get it. Yeah, they want to go for some human drama, but I'm here for nightmares and dreamscapes. I'm not here for treasure maps that go to a place that's not in a nightmare or a dreamscape. Like, this is Stephen King. It's supposed to scare me. I'm not supposed to get some noir criminal story about relationships. And it's not even good at doing that. If it was good at that, then fine. You subverted my expectations, and I ended up enjoying something that I, I didn't sit down and to watch originally. But no, it's not even good at what it tries to do. Skip it. Not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, my compliment is that they've taken the absolute weakest story of the eight. It's on the page. This is the worst thing you could read, but it's not the worst installment. That is a compliment. You've somehow elevated the material. This is the rare case where I feel like what's happening on screen is so much better than what King wrote, which is not to say it can be saved because ultimately not only is the problem that it doesn't fit within the nightmare and dreamscape theme, but it, yeah, it's just ultimately not satisfying. The ending, the resolution of the character, what's going to happen with all this money even as an action shoot them up like most of it happens in the dark and you can barely see what's going on i can't tell what's happening yeah it's just not good so sorry i can see that you put in a lot of sweat and tears to try and elevate this but it will still be a not recommend and I can give this a weak recommend because i enjoyed the fact that it was different and i liked kind of the crime really bad Tarantino type story here going on. I mean, it's like Reservoir Puppies and I can go with that. It doesn't feel like dialogue driven in that way. I feel like there's not enough gangster in this. Again, Brokeback Mountain, way more Brokeback Mountain than Tarantino. And yet the homosexual aspect is so underplayed when it comes to Sisto's character. I feel like it's everything. I feel like it's the whole point in the end. And yet it's not made that big of a deal. I feel to me it's just fun for the treasure hunt crime trying to outsmart some other criminals. Criminal versus criminal with the score going. I had a fun enough time watching it. I, it was harmless, and so I can give that a weak recommend. And it is, of course, the B-plot. The one we're supposed to be impressed with is Tom Berenger in the painting. There's other ones. They're all, the second ones are always the afterthought. We got one more big episode, one more night. 
Autopsy Room 4 is the A film? <laughs> yeah, if the road virus was the headliner, that would have been a shit night for me. <laughs> would you come back for night four? Probably not. But yeah, Richard Thomas, I don't miss me none No Waltons. Like, I gotta see every episode Richard Thomas does. Well, he was in It, don't forget. Yes, uh, Tim Curry version. Yes, he was the main character, I guess. Yeah, Bill. Not one of the better ones, but yeah, I'm not really a fan of him as an actor, but I have seen him on stage, and I, you know what, I, it's not about him. What are they going to do with this terrible story that I read in Everything's Eventual? I hated this story. I couldn't believe they were going to try it. I couldn't believe they thought they could get an hour out of this. Really? Oh, yeah. I hated what was on the page. Didn't have any optimism that they could elevate it. Arnie, tell us what Stuart hated so much. Give us a plot. In the morgue, Dr. Arlen and Dr. Jennings are about to do an autopsy on the body of Howard Cottrell, played by Richard Thomas. There's only one problem, Howard isn't dead. Everyone thinks he had a heart attack and died, but in truth he was bitten by a snake and paralyzed. Howard is fully conscious of what's happening to his body as the doctors strip him and prepare to cut, but he's unable to speak or move to alert the doctors to his situation. Luckily, the snake snuck into Howard's golf bag and bites a hospital orderly who becomes paralyzed. This alerts an orderly named Rusty that Howard is probably alive. Rusty races to the morgue to stop the autopsy at the last second. Doctors give Howard oxygen and the snake's poison wears off. Howard is able to move again as credits roll. Now this is a scary concept. I have always feared that Metallica video that takes footage from that old movie... One, yes. Johnny, get your gun. Yes. It sounds horrifying. And so initially, I thought he was dead and just trapped in his body because we don't know what happens when people die. You could just be trapped in a immobile corpse for eternity going mad. And that is scary as shit. Yeah, I'll give you the premise. It would be really terrifying to be laying on the slab and everyone about to cut into you and you still can feel and still be aware of what's happening to you. Good idea. Agreed. And Stuart, you say this isn't all about John Boy Richard Thomas, but oh boy, this voiceover that he does the entire time that makes this feel like a just a low-level sitcom. What, what, what's going on? I'm not dead. What, what are you guys doing? Please don't cut into me. Like, it's awful. It, it is. <laughs> yes. That voiceover kills the episode like all the stuff that's interesting because i agree great concept oh boy as soon as that voiceover kicks in it, which is right at the beginning like it's dead to me you've ca encapsulated my thought as well that is exactly it they do a pretty good job i feel like the director for this he was the same guy who did the end of the whole mess and he's really going to try here to with some interesting shots. I love the first one where the we just see the sun and then the body bag zips up. Like we see a lot of people trying to make this work, but in the end, the voiceover is going to kill this. I do okay with the voiceover. Now, yes, I wish there was a better actor at the center of this. As the leadoff episode, you really needed a better actor to sell all of this. But I think this guy is fine. Tom Berenger, they should have switched roles, right? Tom Berenger should have been the dead golfer, and he should have been the guy that was, you know, Stephen King. I could go with that, but still, the entire concept of this is so terrifying that for the beginning of this episode, I'm thinking, this is true horror. This is as scary as it gets. 
And then it's going to turn into some kind of weird comedy, though. It, it's totally awkward. Yeah, that's the thing. It becomes a sitcom episode where, like, oh, these autopsy doctors are going to fall in love. And, like, should we cut them open? No, let's kiss for it. Like, they really have to draw this out to hit that 45-minute mark. I want to stress that. Arnie, what you're bringing to this about your paranoia is how you imagine yourself being in this circumstance. But to watch this episode is not to be afraid. It is a bad joke that is told for an hour. And everyone knows if you're going to tell a bad joke, it's got to be quick. Like, nobody needs this kind of joke. The whole thing is he's going to get a big erection. And that's what's going to save him. I cannot believe that, yes, this all ends up being about a boner. They talk so much about his balls. We're bald? Does he only have one after Nam? Yeah, he's got, like, shrapnel in his dick or something. And this is coming out in 2006, and he's talking about standing on a landmine in Nam. How old is he supposed to be exactly? Right. I didn't get... Again, Tom Berenger went to Platoon. Like, I don't get that Richard Thomas did this. Yes, it just... He's miscast in a big, big way. Not that the people around him are any better. I mean, that is the plus, is it's not like there are great thespians playing the horny doctor and her assistant. Yeah, maybe because this is such a sitcom episode, the, the way they execute it. Like, I do imagine it... Make it more CSI. Like, if they were actually doing investigation and trying to figure out, like, what actually happened to him, maybe I could have got caught up in the horror of this situation that we should all be fearing. But it's so silly, I'm not scared at all. Yeah, and the real problem is... There, it's been a problem for every single episode, but this one more than any other is, God, this needs to be shorter. We yes. do not need an hour on this. They have to go and get his wife, and she's got to sit in the lobby and talk about how much she loves him to get to the hour mark. We, we have to see his friend, like, accuse people of stealing his golf club. I guess that sets up why his golf club show up later, but unneeded. They could have just shown up. Yeah, God. Oh, yeah. No, you can have the idea, because that's kind of funny that they're about to cut into you, but they don't because they're going to make out and have sex on top of you or something. <laughs> like That I could play with, but we don't need the actual love story of his life playing out in the background in the lobby. The terrible move there. But how else would you do it? I mean, at the same time, I recognize reading that very short story, 20 pages, I don't know how you would expand upon this. A guy got bit by a snake and nobody knows it. That is not an hour of television. No, it drags considerably. I just love the concept of it. The execution was... It's really revealing the overall cheapness of this entire production. The entire series feels really underfunded with this episode. And this episode shouldn't feel so cheap. It's a guy laying on a table with a couple of doctors walking around him. But the way it's filmed, just the overall visual quality, the acting of everybody involved, including our main character, it's not great. The concept is carrying it for me. And the CGI snake, too. I mean, like, when to, when to, I mean, we can all admit there's no snake like this that makes you look paralyzed, but you're not. Like, this is just a conceit to give King the horror that he wanted to, to have. But worked a whole lot better on the page. I mean, I'm sure maybe in Australia where this is being filmed, everything's deadly there. There's There's something with this kind of toxic poison in it to paralyze you and make you look dead, I'm sure. I wouldn't go against it. Yeah, I don't want to find out, and yeah, it, it is what it is. But unfortunately, dragged out to the length that it is, 
whatever was amusing about it or scary, which again, I would argue this episode is not scary, has, yeah, just been lost. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Autopsy Room 4? Jacob. Fantastic idea that is paralyzed and put to death, frankly, by Richard Thomas's voiceover. Awful, goofy, sitcom level. Do not watch this. Stewart. Yep. <laughs> and I'm going to say this is a recommend because of the concept, because of the suspense. Oof. The concept's not that great that it overcomes this awful execution. I was left in suspense this whole episode that this could end with him dying. This could be the nightmare of the dreamscape. You're satisfied that this is a boner joke? It could be better. This whole series, every single episode could be better. <laughs> but this yeah. one was fun. I had a good time watching it. I was involved. And at times I was biting my nails. So yeah, I got to give that a recommend. I don't know that I can say the same for that night's B story. You know, they got a hell of a band. Steven <laughs> Weber trying to redeem himself from kissing, kissing. That's what I've been missing. No, no, you're going to be missing that kissing, kissing when you watch this episode. Yeah, I wasn't prepared to know that Steven Weber, ruiner of The Shining, you know, <laughs> like that miniseries actor, like try stepping into Nicholson's role. Oof, he's coming back. Like he dares to do it. And he even says, like, on this disc I got, there were like bonus featurettes where he's talking about, like, I have a a soul connection to Stephen King and his work speaks to me. And I'm like, no, this is all that your agent can get you at this point. It's just shitty Stephen King TV miniseries. He's also read some Stephen King audiobooks. Mm hmm. Exactly. <laughs> like, this is your soulmate, all right. But the problem is not his alone. I just want to start out by saying it's not about Stephen Weber not bringing the material to where it needs to be. Yeah, that, he is actually not the problem with this episode. Like, let's find out what it is. Arnie, give him the plot. <laughs> Stephen Weber and Kim Delaney are Clark and Mary Rivingham, a couple on a road trip. When Howard takes a wrong turn, they end up in a small town called Rock and Roll Heaven. There, they stop for coffee, but discover every resident is actually a dead rock star, from Janis Joplin to Elvis. These malevolent spirits won't let the couple leave the town, insisting they come to a concert. The other trapped person there says time moves differently in rock and roll heaven, and this concert will last a long time. Music lover Clark seems okay with that, but Mary isn't as serene as credits roll. And as they start, the most scary thing of this entire series. This happened to me. I was driving on a Kentucky freeway, going about 90, I was 18, I was in a stick shift sporty car. I drop my CD. While on cruise control, I bend over to the passenger seat floor to pick it up. Yeah, this is what teenagers do. I am going straight at the side of a mountain. I swerve left. Crap, now I'm going towards the median. I swerve right, back towards the guardrail for the mountain. Then I do 720 degrees mid-freeway before coming to a stop dead sideways. My car is a stick shift stalled out sideways on the interstate. It is a miracle I'm alive. One of the tires did leave the ground, I was told, because the other three had bald <laughs> spots like you wouldn't believe. The fourth tire? Fine. <laughs> Are you sure you made it out alive? Because I was thought for sure the twist was, when we see this close call happen right at the beginning, the reveal was that they were going to be dead, that this was heaven or hell. That is, right? I mean, 
That has to be the end, is they died in that crash the way I should have probably died. Had any car or truck been near me, I would not be here to talk to you about this bad episode today. Yeah, I think the point of this episode is rock and roll kills. It kills the people that perform it. It kills the people that are still listening to Tweetedly D in 2006 <laughs> because they just they like thought music died at disco. This is when you know that Stephen King wrote this way, way long ago. Oh, yeah, I'm surprised that greasers don't show up at some point in this one, that we're going to go to a 50s diner. It feels so Stephen King with its musical references. Yeah, seriously, can we point out the fact that there have been a whole generation of hip-hop stars, Tupac, that could be here in this episode that they could change (laughs) to tell the story of what happens when pop icons die. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is 50s music, rock and roll, the real rock and roll, according to Stephen King, because he stopped listening to music after disco came about. That, yes, I don't know, is it even a horror that you get locked in listening to this forever? This seems like his reality. They do name drop Kurt Cobain, so I wouldn't mind listening to Nevermind for 20, 30 years. Here's the thing, yeah, give me Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix together. I don't know if I want Jimi Hendrix and Elvis together, though. Like, there's some team-ups that probably not the best music. Agreed. Yes. So many... Interesting idea. I will say this. Reading the story, I didn't think it was very good, but I thought it was very intriguing. I was hopeful that this one could work because I did think that it would be fun to play with. You would want to change some stuff, but it's not very dissimilar from Crouch In, frankly. It's the same idea. A wife that didn't want to go on a journey is being dragged into something that her husband was too proud to avoid. In this case, it's his love of rock and roll music and his disregard for roads with (laughs) <laughs> with with known numbers on it. Like, he insists on taking a shortcut that gets them, yeah, lost in... Well, either they drove into a semi and died, or they wound up in the Twilight Zone where rockers go when they die. Whatever happens, what I know for sure takes place is the worst CGI in this entire series when that CD is spit out of the car <laughs> as they're lost and melts on her lap. <laughs> <laughs> Why do that? We didn't even need that moment. That was so not necessary. It just calls attention to the fact they don't have money. But it tells me they're dead. The only reading that works for this of me is they died in that crash and that this is him going to heaven and her going to hell and it happens to be the same place. Right, yeah. Hell of a band for her, but heaven for him because, yeah. I don't even understand the concept of this rock and roll heaven. Like, there's a church. I don't think about God and church and worshiping when I think about rock and roll. It's sex and drugs. Like, I don't know. I guess I do know why. It's Stephen King. That's why this is a 1950s diner paradise that they end up in. But it doesn't seem like a rock and roll town. And there's greasers outside. Well, there's Leonard Skinner outside, at least. Another huge problem. Can we just say that nobody looks... Like they're supposed to. From Elvis on down, absolutely no actor that they get has any resemblance at all to these people that they're supposedly going, oh my God, is that Janis Joplin? Yeah, absolutely. They have to name all the characters because you (laughs) wouldn't be able to guess it. My wife is like, oh, they got every impersonator in Vegas for this (laughs) episode. I'm like, no, they got every impersonator in Reno for And and this stuff works on the page. You can pull yeah. this kind of bullshit on the page and the reader will go with it. But if you don't have absolutely perfect CGI or impersonations, this is going to fail in real live action. The Elvis one is shocking. How many Elvis impersonators are there? And they managed to find the one that looks nothing like him. 
Right. That's not hard to do. Yeah, I don't get that as a choice. I really don't. And then let's dig into this further. So this is where they go, and it's a heaven for him and a hell for her. Why are they spewing maggots? Why are they chasing them out of town? Are they zombies? Like, we have a whole thing with Ricky Nelson going to jump on their hood. I just, I don't get it. I do love the effect of like when Ricky Nelson gets hit by the car and they use you know they had a CGI the wires out but like they kind of pull him up in this creepy exorcist type way like that was a fun little effect but yeah I don't know why like is this to say that rock stars are just so vain they're going to torture you just to have an audience to keep you there that's the central problem of this conceit is that this should be like oh Janis Joplin is here I'm excited yeah Jimi Hendrix is playing I will go willingly They're treating it like a Body Snatchers movie. Yeah. I I just don't understand that. I don't either. And I mean, admittedly, if Janis Joplin was vomiting up maggots, I wouldn't necessarily want to stay for the rest of the show, but... Oh, you do a selfie with that. Everyone would. Like, that's the cool. I just, you know, like, I'd, like, sell it on eBay. Like, Janis Joplin maggots. Like, you would get really geeky to be this close to rock icons. You just would. You just would. Your natural impulse would not be, we got to get out of town. This is scary. And then I get really confused because there's this man walking around, and I think it's David Crosby. And I'm like, but David Crosby's not dead. And then I guess it just turns out that there are some people that get trapped here. He was just maybe a a wannabe David Crosby who found himself in rock and roll heaven. But by the logic, if you think it's because Stephen Weber and his wife are there because they're dead, like all these people are dying, this waitress that tires to warn them to get out of there. She's actually really dead. She's been there for 12 years. Like that's what I don't get is did they die in that accident and this is either heaven or hell or is this just, again, a weird Twilight Zone episode where this weird little town is that you get stuck in like that Shatner episode where he's always asking the little jack-in-the-box about they're going to get out of town that day. Yeah, this is so ill-defined, ill-written, ill-planned. Why would you even pick this story to begin with? Well, it's kind of fun. I can imagine turning it into something good. I can imagine taking it away from Stephen King and finding the spine and making it a fun little half hour. Well, you're going to need a better writer and a better director than Mike Robe. Yeah, apparently he had done some Lonesome Dove on TV. That was his... Oh, yeah, that's the person you want to get. Yeah, <laughs> slow Western rock and roll heaven. Sure. Yeah, I, I, they even tried to do some Pleasantville stuff. Like there's at one point everything turns black and white, but the red is still there. And Well, I thought they were trying to do like Twin Peaks, too, with the cherry pie. And yeah, it's weird vibe throughout this one. I really feel like you really needed to, before you filmed a, a frame of this, you needed to ask yourself, what is scary about rock and roll? Like that's, <laughs> what is it? What are you trying to tell me is scary about rock and roll? Why is it lead to self-destruction? Start there and work your way out. But what we wind up with here is, yeah, just like some bad wannabe Twin Peaks. But how bad? Jacob Stewart, you recommend, you know, they've got a hell of a band. Jacob you want to know what's scary about rock and roll Stuart is that it's, it's history and evolution contributed to this episode. Like if no <laughs> rock and roll, none of this episode. So that's what's scary about rock and roll. Don't watch this one. Not recommend Stuart. Yeah. It's a funny idea, very poorly executed and without a very clear theme. And you really do want that. Like if you're doing short anthology horror, it's got to have a button on it. You got to end with something that makes you go, ah, that's funny. And just like this just doesn't go anywhere. I don't know where we went, but it wasn't fun. It wasn't rocking. It wasn't funny. It wasn't scary. It was in search of creative forces that never materialized. 
Yeah, this is like a bad road trip with mom and dad where you're stuck in the back seat as they fight in the front and to argue about where they're going. And then when you get there, it's someplace you didn't want to be in the first place. And then they're looking at things that you don't give a shit about because they're old and you're young. No, this episode sucks. It's really, really bad. Sorry, Steven Weber. I hoped you could redeem yourself and you didn't. I was missing the kissing. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, this one's the tough. So here we are. I, Jacob, there's no mystery with you. You've not recommended everything. So unless you just really want to be contrary and say, I still give it a green arrow. <laughs> You're done. Well, let, let me let me say this. This is the shock to me with this series, and, I, and I'm going to talk about a TV show. Well, I'll, I'll recommend the first episode because that's all I've seen, but there's a new Chucky television show out there. I don't know if you guys have seen any. Oh, I yes. think just the first episode's out at this point. But what surprised me with that, like, it's pretty good, but what surprised me, it is made for, like, my daughter's age kids, like it, it, young teens, like it's all about middle school. And like, that was a shock to me. I'm like, oh, they're not going for the people that might have nostalgia for this. They're going for their kids. And like, okay, but it still worked on that level. What shocks me about nightmares and dreamscapes is that again, this, these are all made for like 14 year olds. Like none of these are scary to an adult. I don't think they even know how to be scary. And that is, look, I am a lay person when it comes to King. I've read a handful of his novels. I've got my opinions about him, but Steven, you are not doing yourself any favors by letting this kind of stuff be made. This this makes your material look awful and I never want to read it. And and so that's why I'd say stay away from this. Like maybe if you're 12, this will be really entertaining, but for adults, no, nothing scary here. And that's the shock to me. Stuart. Yeah. So here I'm four and four is what basically I've given four recommends. Four not recommends. A lot of pity recommends. Yeah, overall, it's easy to just tip this into the red, though, because ultimately what's good here is not going to counterbalance what's so incredibly awful in its worst moments. It's just, it, overall, it's an anemic production. It doesn't look very good. They obviously had some money to get these actors, but not enough to give them like the nice like production values that are really going to sell the story. And then, of course, they pick junky stories. By and large... These are not top-tier King stories, and yeah, I just really think that all of them, what you ought to do with this, what TNT should have looked at and said, okay, we're going to just throw out two of these, we're not doing hell of a band and crouch in at all, and we're cutting all the other ones up to 20 minutes and making it a two-hour movie. Like, that's what you do. You just, 20 minutes each episode and make it a two-hour experience. I probably could just say it was fun and nostalgic, and I recommend it in the same way I did Cat's Eye. But dragged out to the hour links that they do, this is a real chore. I don't know why you would say, ultimately, it was worth going down these paths. And... I've recommended most of the episodes, and I decided to come into this final recommend mathematically. So that means I'm giving the series a recommend, but every single recommend I've given has been this, that's eh, fine, kind of recommend. Right. That's what I mean. Like, it's easy to tip it, and some of the low moments here are bad enough to tip it into red. It does seem that way, but just, again, I'm going mathematically. Are the number of good episodes outweighing the number of bad episodes? The problem is, it's entirely forgettable. So if you are a Stephen King completist, if you like his short stories, if you've liked some of these, they're done just as here, come watch it. But that makes it the weakest of recommends, because if unless you are that Stephen King fanatic, find better television. There's so much better television, but that doesn't mean that I'm just going to red arrow this and grade on that bell curve. It's not great, but 
It's fine, sure, Green Arrow. So ranking these, I think, Arnie, you and I are saying Battleground is the best. Jacob, you're saying End of the Whole Mess is the best. Yeah, sure. <laughs> if I gotta pick one, it's that one. Right. I would also say see those two and Omni, Road Virus, if you're really hungry for more. And then it's just, yeah, Fifth Quarter, Autopsy 4, and Do Not See Hell of a Band and Crouch End. I, I would agree. Those are my bottom ones. All those after Road Virus. They're all awful. I'd say stay away from Road Virus, Hell of a Band, and Crouch End. I'd say if you see one... It would be Battleground, but then also the autopsy and end of the whole mess were not so bad either. So yeah, I'd say if you check out a few of those, if you love those episodes, then you can keep going deeper. And if you don't, you know not to go any further. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Battleground is as good as it's going to get. Omni and end of the whole mess had some good ideas, but... I don't know. In the end, I would say it's hard to rank this series at 70 installments, but it's pretty much straight in the middle. When I think about where this fits up with, it's with a lot of the other ones that I just call boring. Cujo, Secret Window, Dark Half. All way better than this. You think way better? Okay. All right. Yeah, this, this was tough to get through for me. I don't know. I'd put it right there with Cujo. I like Secret Window a lot more than this. But yeah, Cujo, it's kind of on par with that in the way that they're all really boring and too long. Yeah, that was my association. In the end, this is just kind of a boring series. It's not even that it's so bad, although some of them are. But for the most part, it just tried my patience. But we're not done with Nightmares and Dreamscapes. What they're going to do next week, actually, I cannot wait. Arnie. It's the dream combination you've always wanted. Stephen King and Clyde Barker together at last with Christopher Lloyd and Matt Frewer. Whoa, how can I tell them apart? It's Artie's version of heaven. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) I have seen this movie, Quicksilver Highway. Cannot wait for this. I've heard of it, but I've not seen it. I'm strangely intrigued. I don't know how you could not be. I mean, these are two of your biggest favorite authors. Here they are. (laughs) Yes. And it is a good Clyde Barker story, as I recall. From the inhuman condition, it's the body politic. Yeah, the hands turn on their owners. Oh, I love that one. And if you want more horror, this Friday we will indulge, become a gold-level donor, and you will we're up to number three in the Paranormal Activity series. It's been an interesting ride so far. Again, I'm a complete newbie, so I'm still not sure what to expect, but hopefully I can expect you guys to join us for that review. Find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And listeners, we will see you in our dreamscapes. What has my life been about? In the great passage of time, I've made no difference. Please, forgive me, anyone I've hurt. When I'm gone, remember me with compassion. I didn't know better. I'm ready for the soul's last voyage into silence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. This one's going to blow your pantyhose off. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. We was kind of hoping you might stick around your sales for a while. And also come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review. 
Yeah, well, I told you, this is uh, an adventure. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. <laughs> You're coming to the show! In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. How long do they go on? A long time. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Of course, it's, it's going to take money to do that. A lot of money. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Dollar in the kitty. You're on. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Smell that $20 bill. If it made it 100 Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Obviously the creep's leader. Formidable, evil, but undeniably handsome. Associate produced by Jason. As you say in your world, I am the man. What the hell does that mean? We're all men. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. What is going on here? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. You are greater than the sum of your parts. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Didn't believe you the first time. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Maybe he didn't want to involve you in something, you know, illegal. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I did it as a, uh, a tribute, an homage. Homage? Sounds like a fancy word for stealing, if you ask me. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. All lawyers are romantic cripples, you know. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Have a wonderful day. You too. Goodbye. But he's unable to speak or move to alert the doctors to his situation. Luckily, the snake stri- Luckily, the snake's- Snake snuck. What the fuck did I do to myself there? I don't know how you could not be. I mean, these are two of your biggest, like, favorite <laughs> authors. Here they are. You mean actors? Authors? Well, both. Yes, right? Yeah, King and Barker. Matt Frewer and... Oh, okay. <laughs> this Friday, we've got the third installment of Paranormal Activity. Join us as a gold lover 
Gold lover. <laughs> gold lover. Yes. I love gold. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Leprechaun. No, that was uh, Goldmember. Oh, I was trying to do M- Mike Myers from Goldmember. Oh, okay. 